Part three of Herein is Love by Rule Howe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Herein is Love. A study of the biblical doctrine of love in its bearing on personality, parenthood, teaching, and all other human relationships by rule l howe part three god in the world for god so loved the world that he gave his only son john three sixteen the concepts and attitudes of mr clark mr churchill mrs Strait, mr knowles and professor manby lead them and the rest of the church away from god and the world their clericalism pietism moralism intellectualism and humanism represent ways in which frightened and disturbed people seek to make themselves secure unfortunately however their security then is purchased at the price of their freedom their lives become locked up in the small closet of their limited concepts their literal and rigid understanding of the christian church and its faith makes them so loveless that their lives have an alienating effect on others and they themselves fail to find god concepts about god may be dangerous they do not, nor shall we, find God in our concepts about him or about his church. He is not to be found in assertions about him or in abstract belief about his omnipotence or other attributes. God is not an idea, but being itself, and our ideas are only our concept or image of him. When we confuse God with our ideas about him, we are misled into thinking that we know what he wants, and we tend to represent and act for him uncritically. This confusion between God and our ideas about him explains why the religion of so many people lacks humility and reverence. It is one of the reasons why true Christian fellowship is as rare as it is not only may these ideas and concepts lead us away from god but also they may lead us out of the world and away from that encounter with the world which began with the incarnation separation of the church from the world its assumption that its task is to defend itself from the attacks of the so-called secular is defensiveness of god in response to the unfaith of the world all are symptoms of church people's lack of faith in god and of their failure to understand how and where he works in other words the otherworldliness of the church hardly harmonizes with the worldliness of god who chose to create the world to speak and act in and through it, and who finally entered it 
and made the life of man in history his right hand. Our belief in the Incarnation and our understanding of the love of God for the world should send us as children of God into the world, into the so-called secular order, eager to participate in its meanings and to bring them into relation with the meanings of God. As we work at this, we shall begin to experience true Christian fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which I understand to be the fellowship of people who have the courage to live together as persons rather than to relate themselves to each other through their ideas and preconceptions. Christian fellowship is living with and for one another responsibly, that is, in love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 1 John 4.20 And he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John 4.16 If we would find God, therefore, and learn the meaning of life and love, we must live in the world by giving ourselves to one another responsibly. It is for this that the church exists. The church does not exist to save, build up, and adorn itself, nor does it exist to protect or defend God. The mission of the church is to participate in the reconciling dialogue between God and man. Here is the source of the true life of the world. Here, too, is the source of the life of the church and its worship. Without this, everything, including worship, is false and idolatrous. These are some of the things which Mr. Wise was trying to say to the group. He represents those in the church who see beneath the surface of things and behind the distortions of conventional and defensive Christianity. But the question that finally emerges is, how do we free ourselves from the distortions of our faith? What should we do? We find God at work in the world. The answer is simple. We should look for God in the world. We shall find him in the meeting between men. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18.20 And gathered in my name means gathered in the spirit and after the character of Jesus. It does not mean gathered only under special and separate religious auspices. To be sure, the gatherings of God's people for worship and instruction are indispensable to the life of the church. But unless we translate our worship and instruction into action, our religious observances will be idolatrous and sinful, and will separate men from each other and from God. So we look for God where he works, that is, in the world and between man and man. The place where we encounter God first, in the course of our individual lives, is in the family. The family provides the individual with his first experience of living in relation to other persons. And this is his first experience of Christian fellowship. Immediately we are confronted with the nature of God's creation. 
and therefore with the revelation of himself and how he works. We are confronted with the relational nature of all life, for nothing exists in isolation. Everything and every person finds full meaning only in relation to other things and persons. Everything and every person finds full meaning only in relation to other things and persons. We are used to thinking of persons as living in relation to persons. We are less accustomed to thinking of things existing in relation to other things. But does not the tree exist in relation to the earth, atmosphere, and water? And does not the hammer exist as hammer in relation to the hand that uses it and the object it pounds? The only difference is that persons are active participants in relationship and things are passive. But things may be made active symbols or instruments in the meeting between man and man, as, for instance, in the case of the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. God created man to live in relation with the world of things, with himself and with his fellow men, and to live in these relationships in such a way that he will discover and grow in his relationship with God. The terms man and relationship are synonymous. An old Roman proverb puts it, One man is no man at all. Alone we would cease to exist. We all have had the experience of being shut out from some important relationship, and we know what a desperate feeling it produces. We lose whatever sense of well-being we may have had, and we begin to feel unwanted, depressed, and less alive. When we are warmly gathered again into an important group, we begin to come alive. Our blood runs faster, and we know the joy of life again. It is almost as though we had been resurrected. The sense of being apart, the experience of fellowship, makes the difference between life and death. I once visited in a home where a teenage girl was having one of her frequent, tragic love experiences. The boy she was currently dating had not called her up for three days. She was full of gloom, moped around the house, and lost her usual interest in everything. One evening the phone rang and the call was for her. First we heard her laugh, and then she burst into the room full of gaiety and enthusiasm. You would not have known her for the same girl. Alone and rejected as she thought, she was dead. Restored to relationship, she came alive again. We may smile patronizingly at the emotional excesses of this teenage girl, but on the other hand, we understand deeply the fundamental meaning of her experience. The patterns of relationship begin with our birth. We would not survive if the whole community, centering in the basic function of the mother, did not assume responsibility for us. Our dependence upon her for food and care is the occasion for the beginning of relationship. 
and both the infant and the mother have their part to play she moves as a person toward her child with the gifts of her milk and of her love the infant on his side in random and non-specific ways calls out to her he cries and makes his simple movements she responds to his cries with her care he responds to her care by sleeping and waking by crying and cooing and thus begins the dialogical nature of relationship relationship is dialogue relationship is dialogue dialogue occurs when one person addresses another person and the other person responds it is a two-way process in which two or more people discuss meanings that concern them to whatever degree one part of the dialogue is lost to that degree the relationship ceases to exist a marriage for instance ceases to exist except in form only when either one of the partners ceases to communicate with the other and the quality of address and response is lost likewise true religion disappears when it represents only what god says and eliminates the meaning of man's response religious dogma is sometimes used to shackle human creativity and the form of belief is allowed to stifle the vitality of faith similarly religion disappears when the address to god and the response of god are eliminated the pharisee in jesus parable had lost the dialogical quality of his prayer because he stood and prayed thus with himself luke eighteen eleven he was not speaking to god and he expected no response with the result that his religion lost its dialogical quality since he was separated from god by his self-righteousness this dialogical quality is indispensable to creative living it is out of the dialogical encounter that the individual emerges only by the process of dialogical teaching can children really learn the relationship between parent and child is not one-sided the child may protest against the authority of the parent this is the child's part of the dialogue the parent may recognize his child's need to find himself as an autonomous person by making allowance for his protest and exercise of freedom the next stage in the dialogue between them is the reassurance which the child experiences and reflects in his behavior in response to his parents affirmation of him as a person he may show this by a more realistic acceptance of the parent's authority this in turn may reassure the parent so that he feels more relaxed in the exercise of his authority gradually the parent and the child begin to experience a more mature relationship with each other we are responsible for each other because of the dialogical nature of relationship we have responsibility for one another each of us has a responsibility to call forth the other as a person and each needs to be called forth since none of us will develop automatically we call forth one another in the same way that the conductor of an orchestra 
calls forth the powers of his musicians and the potentialities of their instruments and they respond by calling forth the interpretive genius of their conductor each draws out the powers of the other the potentialities for development are inherent in us but we need the warmth and stimulation of other persons this is certainly true in the case of the newly born the role of parents and teachers is to call forth and welcome the personal responses and initiatives of their children this is also true of those who because of the pressures of life start to unfold as persons but then withdraw in order to protect themselves from further hurt here again parents and teachers pastors and counselors and indeed all men from time to time are obliged to call forth some soul who is either in hiding or in retreat this role is easy to see in our relation with children because children's responses are sometimes so uncomplicated that the process we are talking about is clearly revealed susie feeling that an injustice had been done her retreated to her room and withdrew into herself after seeing that she would need help in order to come to herself again her mother finally asked her if she would like to help her bake a cake soon susie and her mother were chatting happily together in the kitchen doing something that susie loved to do whenever her mother had time to help her during the course of their conversation the mother had an opportunity to help susie understand the situation that had upset her as a result susie emerged out of the situation more mature and resourceful i once knew a bus driver who discovered that he too could call forth people by the way in which he greeted them and did business with them on his morning runs he observed that many people were grumpy and sullen and treated him and their fellow passengers discourteously at first his inclination was to respond in the same way then he discovered that by taking the initiative and greeting his passengers with a smile and cordial word and by making change cheerfully and being patient with their grumpiness the spirit of his passengers underwent a transformation over the years a number of people told him how grateful they were for his good cheer they said that his influence had often been decisive in their lives it had affected their relations with other people thus his attitude toward people and his method of relating himself to them as a driver of a bus became his ministry and since he was a member of the church the church's ministry reached out and worked through that bus driver into the lives of many who may never have come anywhere near the church through such relationships god is present and active in the world the relationship between man and man therefore not only is important to men but also is a part of god's plan for the reconciliation of the world unto himself it is given to us for our own sakes and also for the accomplishment of god's purposes unfortunately however 
our relating to one another often is hurtful because of our anxiety and insecurity. We may attack others in order to make ourselves feel secure. Instead of calling them forth, we cause them to withdraw. Even when we undertake to love others, we may do it in ways that hurt them because we love them for selfish reasons. Human relationships in themselves are ambiguous and we need deliverance from the ambiguity of them, for these relationships can either destroy people or call them forth. Human love is ambiguous. Furthermore, because human love can be ambiguous, we do not know whether it is safe to give and accept love. It is a risk both to love and to accept love, and all of us, to some degree, are afraid to take the risk. Some people, to be sure, have more courage for it than others. They love more courageously, and are more courageous in their acceptance of others' love. These people seem to have a power of being that others lack. The giving and receiving of love implies responsibility for one another, and we may withhold our love and reject the love of others as a way of evading the responsibility of love. We are willing to love up to the point where it begins to be inconvenient to love any more. We like the image of ourselves as loved and loving people but we would like the benefit without the responsibilities of the role. When the response to our love presents us with demands, we may begin to hold people off. We may say, Yes, to be sure, I love you, but keep your distance. I am willing to give of myself, but not too much. I need to keep something of me for myself. By this attitude we are admitting that when we love another, we have to give ourselves to him, entrust ourselves to him. Commitment to another person is a courageous act, and it is no wonder that we sometimes recoil from it. What has been said about giving love is equally true of accepting love, for the acceptance of love also calls for trust and commitment. If I really respond to your love, I will open myself to the possibility of being hurt, because your love cannot be completely trusted. Furthermore, if you should really love me, I am not worthy of your love, and I do not welcome the judgment of me that is implicit in your love. I shall therefore make a cautious response to you, and give myself to you guardedly. Then the person who is giving love is made lonely because his gift is not accepted. He too begins to withdraw and to dole out his love, which in turn increases the anxiety of the one to whom it is being given. This is an aspect of human fellowship, which we need to recognize before we talk much about Christian fellowship. Human fellowship is both heroic and tragic. It is both renewing and destructive. It is both healing and hurtful. But it is indispensable to life. This is our human predicament. 
something is needed to cut into the ambiguity of human love and this is what christ does he draws the confused currents of human love into the unifying stream of divine love thus making possible a new relationship as the apostle paul makes clear we become new creatures in christ and as such a part of a new creation see second corinthians five seventeen having considered some of the characteristics of human love and fellowship let us now look at christian love and fellowship one word of caution is needed before we begin the fellowship of christian men and women will still have its human look but something new has been added that makes a difference what is it how shall we describe the new relationship end of part three recording by bill mosley llano county texas usa